0: Tomorrow
1: let's call the old thing off But oh, if we call the old Hello looters, off, welcome to another special episode gone. of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot, special episode number 4 Essentially, the loot in these special episodes is a specific scene from a film I love I break it apart, analyze it, and see why it works For those keeping count, we did one in August on David Fincher's 7, another one in October on Texas Chainsaw Massacre, and a third one in December on Die Hard. So if you haven't heard them and are interested, you can always go back and look for them. Since it's February, I wanted to do something rom-com oriented because of Valentine's Day, which also fits our theme of comedy, which was the topic of our previous episode, The Comedy Loot, in which me and comedian Steve Mason talk about his work as a stand-up and as a writer, and about comedy in general. So that's another one you can look for and listen to. So, after deciding to do one on a romantic comedy, there really wasn't much hesitation what film to choose from, so I went with my favorite rom-com, When Harry Met Sally, and the scene I'm going to analyze is, well, When Harry Met Sally. But first, let's start with a bit of perspective and background. I saw When Harry Met Sally a long, long time ago. Don't remember when, probably early 90s. But I fell in love with it as soon as I saw it. With rewatches and rewatches, it cemented its place as my favorite rom-com. And rewatching it last night just confirmed that. I think it's an excellent portrayal of how relationships can grow and evolve. And it does so by being genuine, touching, and funny all at the same time. Now, like all my special episodes, this will be an in-depth discussion, so be warned, even though the scene I'm going to talk about occurs within the first 15 minutes, the film will be spoiled. If you haven't seen When Hattie Met Sally, turn this off, see it now, and then come back, okay? I'll wait. As of now, it is streaming free on Showtime, DirecTV, and Fubo. So let's begin.
2: Men
0: and women can't be friends, because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her.
2: So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive?
0: No, you pretty much want to nail them, too.
2: Greg? No, I don't like to eat between meals. I'll roll down the
0: window. faceless guy rips off your clothes and that's the sex fantasy you've been having since you were 12. Exactly the same.
2: Well, sometimes I varied it a little. Which part? What I'm wearing. You tell her about other women. Yeah,
0: like the other night. I made love to this woman and it was so incredible, I took her to a place that wasn't human. She actually meowed. You made a woman meow?
2: comfortable sure i need to talk what happened what's the matter Harry came over last I night. i went
0: over to sally's last
2: night because i was upset that joe was getting and married one thing led to another. and before i knew it we were kissing make and a then long story short we, we did. did it they did it
0: you're challenging
2: <laughs> i'm difficult i'm too structured i'm completely closed off
0: but in a good way In eight years.
2: It's not the same for men. Charlie Chaplin had babies when he was 73.
0: <laughs> yeah but he was too old to pick them up.
1: So just to set things up When Harry Met Sally follows the relationship between the titular couple, played by Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan, over the course of roughly 10 years. Through those 10 years, they go from bickering carpoolers to inseparable confidants, from unfriendly to friendly, and eventually, well, something more. This is also framed by Harry and Sally's interaction with other couples, most notably their respective best friends, Jess and Marie, played by Bruno Kirby and Carrie Fisher. This was director Rob Reiner's fifth film, after a string of hits with This Is Spinal Tap, The Sure Thing, Stand By Me, and The Princess Bride, and a string which he would run into the 90s with Misery and A Few Good Men. The script is written by Nora Ephron, and it's partly inspired by Reiner's own ventures into single life after his divorce from actress and fellow director Penny Marshall. The film received critical acclaim and is considered by many as one of the best romantic comedies ever. The film opens in 1977 as recent college graduates Harry and Sally share a drive from Chicago to New York City. Harry, who is dating Sally's best friend um, um, Amanda Amanda Rice and Reese, doesn't know Sally but meets her as they start this drive. And their conversation as they get to know each other pretty much frames what happens during the whole film. One of the things that the film wants to emphasize through this conversation is how different Harry and Sally are, how contrasting their attitudes and general approach to life are, at least on the surface. She's too structured and uptight. He's too carefree and laid back. She's a jolly unfettered optimistic. He's a cynical pessimistic that always reads the last page of a book first in case he dies before finishing it. And those differences are perfectly portrayed by Crystal and Ryan, who are phenomenal. Another thing that's highlighted subtly, but it is, is how threatened or should I say challenged Sally is by Harry's brazen attitude and questions during this scene. Despite feigning offense, she actually feels the need to prove herself to Harry, whether it's the question of why she wants to be a journalist or who she has had sex with but that's the scene with the conversation it goes from their reasons to move to new york to their overall outlook in life from their opinions on the ending of casablanca to their take on friendships and relationships so in analyzing this scene i'm going to talk about three things or themes that they talk about during their interaction and their conversation and how those themes extend to the overall film and well relationships
2: i have it all figured out it's an 18-hour trip, which breaks down into six shifts of three hours each, or, alternatively, we could break it down by mileage. There's a there's a map on the uh, visor that I've marked to show the locations where we can change shifts. Greg? No, I don't like to eat between meals.
0: <sighs> I'll roll down the window.
1: The first thing I want to talk about is the character's personal organization and structure. From the moment these two characters get in the car, you know right away who they are in that aspect. But the film does such a great job of conveying that in a way that feels organic. You see that Sally likes to have things organized and structured, while Harry feels more like a slob or a fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants kind of guy. She has the 18-hour trip neatly organized with a map and carefully planned shifts and selected spots where they can swap who's driving and who's the passenger. On the other hand, he just wants to sit back, eat grapes, and spit out of the window. As a matter of fact, even though they're supposed to alternate driving, during the course of the scene, we only see Harry driving once as they get to the diner. The rest of the scene, as they depart Chicago, after they leave the diner, and as they get to New York, Sally's the one driving. So we're used to see her at the driving seat in control. Their stop at the diner only reveals more of this, particularly in the way they order their food. What can I get you? i a number
2: three. I'd like the chef salad please with the oil and vinegar on the side and the apple pie a la mode. Chef and apple a la mode. But I'd like the pie heated and I don't want the ice cream on top, I want it on the side and I'd like strawberry instead of vanilla if you have it. If not, then no ice cream, just whipped cream, but only if it's real, if it's out of a can, then nothing. Not even the pie? No, just the pie, but then not heated. Uh-huh.
0: What?
1: Nothing, nothing. There's a line that was not the script that didn't make it, but in it the waitress asks Harry what bread he wants his order, and he just replies, surprise me, which goes further into his general attitude. But going back to what we see, he just orders the number three. When it's Sally's turn, well, she clearly wants things served in a certain way, which is just an extension of what I said before. She wants structure and she wants control of the situation, which is why she asks for things a certain way. And yet more of this can be seen in the way they each handle the check. Sally is busy calculating how much should everybody pay and what would be the 15% for the tip, while Harry just drops some bills on the table. All the structure goes to the core of how their relationship evolves, because becoming friends with Harry is clearly not something she had in her mind, much less becoming romantically involved with him. But sometimes, as much as we fight against things, life throws a curveball and you just have to deal with it. The second thing I want to talk about is their overall outlook in life, their goals and ambitions.
0: Why don't you tell me the story of your life?
2: Story of my life.
0: We've got eighteen hours to kill before we hit New York.
2: Story of my life isn't even going to get us out of Chicago. I mean, nothing's happened to me yet. That's why I'm going to New York.
0: So something happened to you. Yes. Like
2: what? Like I'm going to journalism school to become a reporter.
0: So you can write about things that happen to other people.
2: That's one way to look at it.
0: Suppose nothing happens to you. Suppose you lived there your whole life and nothing happens, you never meet anybody, you never become anything, and finally you die, one of those New York deaths that nobody notices for two weeks until the smell
1: drifts into the hallway. In this exchange, we can tell that Sally is the kind of person that has had her life structured in chapters. Now it's school, now it's college, now it's work, whereas Harry seems to be more carefree and laid back. There's yet another part that wasn't the script where Harry reveals he graduated from law school, but that he wasn't clear of what to do, that he just saw that as a starting point. The great thing is that even though it didn't make it into a film, you kind of get that vibe from him, and that's thanks to Crystal's great performance. The way he sits in that car, his delivery, his cadence is so relaxed, and again, laid back. As they are driving into the diner, we hear them talking about the ending of Casablanca, and their differing talks on how that film ends also goes to show their general contrasting outlook in life. You're wrong. I'm not wrong. You're he, wrong. He, wa- he wants her to
0: leave. That's why he puts her on the plane. I
2: don't think she wants to stay.
0: Of course she wants to stay. Wouldn't you rather be with Humphrey Bogart than the other guy?
2: I don't want to spend the rest of my life in Casablanca, married to a man who runs a bar. It probably sounds very snobbish to you, but I don't.
0: You'd rather be in a passionless marriage.
2: And be the first lady of Czechoslovakia. Then
0: live with a man you've had the greatest sex of your life with just because he owns a bar and that is all he does.
2: Yes. And so with any woman in her right mind, women are very practical, even Ingrid Bergman, which is why she gets on the plane at the end of the movie.
1: As most of you know, at the end of Casablanca, Ingrid Bergman leaves the tumultuous Casablanca and his long-lost love Humphrey Bogart for the relative safety and security of Europe and his fiancé Paul Henry. Obviously, Sally thinks that Bergman did the right thing in leaving Casablanca and Bogie while Harry thinks they belong together. And that contrasting view on how the film should have ended says a lot about how they expect their lives to go. We found out later that Sally breaks up with his longtime boyfriend, Joe, because she wanted to have a family and stability, and he didn't, while Harry is just reeling in from his divorce, not sure of where to go or what to do. So when we put what they're going through at that moment against their talks on the ending of Casablanca, well, Sally essentially lost her Paul Henry, her stability and future, while Harry has lost his Ingrid Bergman, or whom he thought was his eternal love that Casablanca conversation then veers into a conversation about sex and relationships in general, which is the third point I want to talk about. I understand.
2: What? What? Nothing. What? Forget about it. What? what? Forget about what? It's not important. Now just tell me.
0: Obviously, you haven't had great sex yet. Two, please. Yeah, right over there. Yes, I
2: have. No, you yeah. have It just so happens
1: that I have had plenty of good sex. Now, because she's arguing that Ilsa, Ingrid Bergman's character, did the right thing by leaving Bogey, which Harry refers to as the best sex she, uh, Ilsa, has ever had, he concludes that Sally has never had great sex. And although the script included a back and forth about how many people each of them had slept with, what made it into the film is that conversation about the one guy she claims she had great sex with, Sheldon. But you kinda get the idea. She's more reserved about her sex life, while he's more open about it, and shall we say, promiscuous maybe and yet that's another thing we see change as the film progresses as we see both of them become more open and comfortable with each other about discussing their sex lives and their fantasies and whatnot or you can contrast that first diner conversation with what might be the most popular scene of the film which happens to take place at another diner only 10 years later and in this case it is Sally who manages to humble Harry by faking an orgasm in front of everybody to prove a point about how little Harry knows about women. As they lead the diner, Harry compliments Sally on how attractive she is, which offends her because she sees it as a pass and he's dating her best friend, but that conversation unspools the big question that the film sora of hangs above them and the audience, which is, can men and women be friends without sex getting in the way?
0: You realize, of course, that we could never be friends. Why not? What I'm saying is, and this is not a come on in any way, shape, or form, is that men and women can't be friends because the sex part always gets
2: in the way. That's not true. I have a number of men friends, and there is no sex involved. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you don't. Yes, I do. I
0: only think you do.
2: You're saying I'm having sex with these men without my knowledge?
0: No, what I'm saying is they all want to have sex with you.
2: They do not. Do, too. They do not. Do, too. How do you know?
0: Because no man can be friends with a woman that he finds attractive. He always wants to have sex with her.
2: So you're saying that a man can be friends with a woman he finds unattractive?
0: No, you pretty much want to nail them, too.
2: What if they don't want to have sex with you?
0: Doesn't matter, because the sex thing is already out there, so the friendship is ultimately doomed, and that is the end of the story.
2: Well, I guess we're not going to be friends, then.
0: Guess not.
1: I don't think the film answers the question, particularly because the two leads do become friends, but eventually end up together as a couple, but I don't think the goal is to get us thinking about the way relationships grow and evolve. After this initial meeting, both Harry and Sally part ways and don't see each other again for five years. When they have a chance meeting at an airport, we get to see a glimpse of how some of their points of view and positions have changed. For example, Sally claims she never said that Ilsa should have left Bogey in Casablanca, which might signal a somewhat different outlook to life and relationships. None of them remembers Amanda, even though she was Sally's best friend and Harry's girlfriend in college, which also signals on how much things change from our youth and our times in college to where we are as adults. I mean, how often do we talk with high school friends or college friends? Our lives change, our priorities change, and so are relationships. But more importantly, Harry suggests they be friends, an amendment to the earlier rule, he calls it. And although they end up parting ways, once again, it does show how people change, which I think is one of the models or conclusions of the film. You know, people change, they grow, they mature and evolve. And so does the relationships we have, whether it's a friendship or family relations or in this case, romantic relationships. The second thing, or the second model or conclusion that I think the film wants to transmit, is that relationships are not standard procedures. You can't encase them in rigid boxes and classifications. Through the film, we get to see how Harry and Sally's relationship grows and evolves, but we also get to see their best friend's relationship, Jess and Marie, which is a relationship that grows and evolves in a much different way than Harry and Sally, and yet still feels real and authentic in the film. And the same can be said about all. They intersperse interviews with older couples that Reiner peppers through the film, all of which were based in real interviews with real couples. But the thing is that you can't define your current relationship by the standards of society. You know, you must marry before this age and you must have kids before this age. Sally is frequently afraid of this because it goes to her structured nature. But then again, you shouldn't define your relationship by what society expects. Or you can define your relationship by your past ones, like Sally with Joe or Harry with Helen or you can define it by your best friends or the ones we see on TV or whatever. Your relationship is yours, yours to develop, yours to grow, to let it flow and become what it wills and when it wills. So those are my thoughts on that excellent scene from an excellent film. I think it does a great job of showing us in an organic way who these two characters are and how opposite yet attracted they are. The chemistry between Crystal and Ryan is excellent and the way they play off each other is among the best I've seen in any rom-com. The script by Efron is excellent and, and witty and funny. It's a great romantic comedy. And as such, the film is full of other great scenes and moments. I went and asked my friends on Twitter to let me know what is their favorite moment from the film and this is what I got. My friend Sylvie at Sly Wit said, Hard to choose, probably Carrie Fisher and her Rolodex. Which is a hilarious moment, you see. There's a running joke on the film about Carrie Fisher's character Marie only dating married men. So when she finds out that Sally has broke up with her boyfriend Joe, Marie pulls out a Rolodex full of potential candidates for her to date. When she pulls up an index card with a name, Sally remarks that he's married and Marie just goes, Oh, married and bends the corner of the index card. Such a great moment and a great delivery from Carrie Fisher, who is excellent on this film. My friends at How Not A Movie said, I like the double date scene, such a fun moment in that movie. And they're right. Another highlight from Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby. Like I said to my friends, I think it's a great way to juxtapose how different relationships can grow and become what they are. From Harry and Sally's 10 plus year journey to be together, to the instant love sap that Jess and Mary get from each other once they meet in that double date. My friend Jerry Sarabia at uh, Jerry at the movie said any great scenes, but I have to say Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby on the phone with the couple is one of the most hilarious scenes ever. So once again, another Carrie Fisher and Bruno Kirby scene, which probably tells you how great they are, but also how sad that both of them are not with us anymore. But anyway, this scene occurs right after Harry and Sally finally have sex, and as Harry walks out of her apartment, she calls Marie and Harry calls Jess from a payphone. And there's a great back and forth between the four as they both share what happened and the timing and delivery is so perfect that you just can't help but laugh. So that's all for today. Thanks so much for listening to this special episode of Thief's Monthly Movie Loot. If you like this breakdown and have any thoughts to share, look me up on Twitter and my personal account at ThiefsCGT, T-H-I-E-F-C-G-T, or the podcast account at T-M-M-L-2021. You can also look me up on Letterboxd as Thief12, and we can see what we're seeing. Also, stay tuned for my next regular episode, which will come out later in the week, my February loot, and we also have some guests lined up for our March episode, so keep your eyes and ears open for that sometime in mid-March. So in the meantime, let's just sing along and say goodbye.